Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello and welcome back from your weekend. I hope it was a good one. I have to say something personal, which is when you get older, first of all, when you get older, you start 40% of your sentences with when you get older. (laughs) But when you get older, you can injure yourself doing nothing and then it won't heal. It's like like last week, somehow or other, I injured my Achilles tendon so that it's really quite painful to walk. And so I've stayed off my Achilles tendon and I don't know how I did it. I mean, like I didn't do anything. and then I stayed off it for days, and it feels exactly the same as when it first started hurting. So just a little thing that you, you can all look forward to that if you're, if you're not my age. Um, all right. So we're going to talk. I, I really do feel, as I was saying before, that we've gotten sort of habituated to this level of stimulation in the news. It's, it kind of alarms me, our level of habituation. Uh, I mean, say a weekend ago, not this past weekend, you, you had these two gigantic serpents of stories. You know, one of them was Parkland was still a relatively fresh story, obviously was going to be a story longer than school shootings, unfortunately, typically are. Uh, and then you had the 13-person uh, Russian indictment. You know, those are just massive, towering stories. This weekend, we had, like, a lot of things happening, like, really big things happening. But, you know, we're going to enumerate a lot of them for you today, including, obviously, Parkland continues to be a story, a story that needs a tremendous amount of straightening out. Although I will argue in the second segment of today's show that the bigger story now has become attempts to 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 create a fog of falsehoods and confusion uh, about the, the young student um, activists and, and, and just, you know, create all kinds of misperceptions about what's actually going on here. Um, that That's almost a bigger story right now than anything else, although there's plenty of other bandwidth on that story. All right. So but we're going to begin with um, a lot of stuff going on that I think we sort of happen further away from Parkland and a little bit more in the sphere of A, the Mueller investigation and B, our political climate in general. Uh, and to help us do that, uh, we have Jeremy Stahl, uh, a Slate senior editor, um, and he's been covering a lot of these things, including, in fact, some Parkland-related stuff. But I think uh, for now, here in the first segment, I'd like to uh, focus a, a little bit more on, um, on on some of the other stuff that happened this weekend. Um, you know, Jeremy, maybe we could start with um, uh, some of the furor that went on at CPAC. I, I know a different r- slate writer was there on the ground, but you, you covered some of this. I think you wrote in particular uh, about former Republican National Chairman Michael Steele, who was kind of in the most genial manner possible, denounced in a pretty racialized way uh, from the podium there uh, at CPAC. CPAC is this sort of hyper-conservative, you know, I, I don't know, it's, it's hyper-conservative political Coachella or something that they have every year. Uh, anyway, you, you can pick up the story from there. Yeah, hi, Colin. Hi. Um, first of all, you're absolutely right that it's kind of hard to keep up with everything. And <laughs> even that Michael Steele thing that happened on Friday seems like forever ago. But basically, you had the communications director of CPAC, um, which you described correctly as like a conservative Coachella 
conference every year, uh, talking about how I think he said that the only reason that Steele got his job as RNC chairman in 2009 was because he was a black man and that that was a mistake or that was wrong, I think were his precise words. And, you know, coming uh, at a conference devoted to the elevation and appreciation of Donald Trump, um, even though that the, per- the person who said that, the speaker himself, was a person of color, there's uh, a really ugly way to interpret that as, you know, the GOP and particularly the conservative movement fully shying away from any effort whatsoever to say that we should diversify our party and we should be looking to be a party of more than just um, angry white men. Right. So I think the the sort of thing that follows the dot, 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 if I understood this correctly, and I watched the speaker and then I watched this kind of after party on the Michael Steele show, which is a thing that happens on Sirius, where one of the guests was vaping, which you, you don't really see that much in, in, in radio broadcast these days. But um, if I understand the entire context, I think what follows the, you know, we, we chose Michael Steele just because he's a black guy. I think what follows the dot, dot, dot is, and he was kind of, he's turned out to be kind of weak tea in terms of what we're looking for at a place like CPAC and in the era of Trump. You know, he, he's in fact not ready to to go full on red meat and charge hard into battle. This is a theme that, that I think renewed itself several times over the weekend, and we can talk about that. But that was at least, that's what I took to be the guy's point was, well, so we made this choice, maybe we made it for the wrong reason, and now we've got this public figure who, who really isn't going to do what we'd like to do here, those of us who are who've really fully uh, drank the CPAC potion. Yeah, I guess there was always some concern about Michael Steele, even in 2009 when he was elevated this, to this position, that he might be too uh, moderate for the party. But you know, at the same time, he uh, he was the RNC chair at the time of the Tea Party movement, and he put the the party's support behind that, and he certainly supported it himself and helped to elevate these voices in the conservative movement that kind of gave rise to uh, the birther movement and gave rise to Trump himself and gave rise to this harsher line on immigration that the party has taken um, since the rise of Trump. And, you know, uh, to say that he was too moderate maybe gives him a little bit too much or too little credit almost. I think also what you're seeing there is, and I don't really want to dwell on this Michael Steele stuff that much, but I, I do think that what you see here sometimes, and maybe this is one of the things that that speaker was getting at, is like, for example, in 2000, George W. Bush uh, and, and was sort of, and the people who were organizing his campaign were following that kind of Lee Atwater big tent concept. So that their convention in Philadelphia, they were just showcasing minority Republicans any way they could. And I mean, if you showed up with a, like, Argentine and American or something in your delegation, they grab her and put her on C-SPAN, you know, before she could even draw breath. And it was like, wow, because we're so look at all of us. We're so we're such an incredible rainbow here, you know. And But the problem is it didn't really play out in the form of policy. And ultimately, in 2008, uh, they get their butts whipped because they're not just behind. Uh, 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 history. They're behind the curve of demographics. And and I think, Michael Steele, you could sort of say the same thing. Well, you know, good, you had got a African-American uh, national chairman. You needed something like that, but it doesn't really mean anything if nothing goes with it. 
Yeah, the the, the part of that uh, criticism uh, from the CPAC podium was that he, uh, the speaker said that he it was a cynical thing to do, and that's the part where I think it was kind of a Kinsley gaffe in that he actually said the true thing that. Um, he got in trouble for saying the true thing. It was it was a cynical move. Right. You're referring to Michael Kinsley says that the definition of a political gaffe is when a politician or someone like that says tells the truth by accident. Um, That's right. Yeah. So um, just contextualizing for our uh, listeners. So, I mean, this kind of turned into a theme over the weekend, Jeremy. I mean, you've got uh, Mona Charon. She gets up. She's on a panel, a kind of a hashtag Me Too panel. And she basically says, you know, how can we ever be taken seriously about this stuff uh, if, in fact, we, we won't be honest about stuff that Donald Trump appears to have done in his own lifetime. She gets booed. She gets, this seems to be the new thing. You have to get walked out by security people so that nothing bad can uh, happen to you. You got Max Boot who's moved over to uh, become a, uh, a Washington Post columnist saying, if this if this is conservatism, I don't, I don't want any part of it. Uh, Jonah Goldberg was on Morning Edition on NPR this morning, basically saying the same thing. It's kind of like, you know, we've got writers and thinkers and stuff like that. We never signed up for any of this crap. And so if the Republican Party is going to insist that you you be Trumpified. Um, you know, there's a bunch of us who are just going to sit that out. And I kind of wonder, I mean, they're being more vocal right now than they have been all along, although there's always been plenty of never Trumpers. Uh, and I'm sort of wondering what that means. You know, I mean, does it mean anything if a whole bunch of conservative intellectuals that say, ah, no, thanks. No, we're going to skip all this. I mean, I I like to think it might, but at the same time, you know, the National Review did a did an entire issue devoted to why Trump would not be should not be president, and now they're kind of um, going along with uh, the rest of the con- conservative media to a certain extent. And you know, you have these moments and these these little bubbles, and I think in this instance, a lot of it is on the uh, around the fact that Mona Charon did say something, and she said two things. What she said was she criticized uh, conservatives for being hypocritical about Trump's alleged sexual misconduct and um, about um, Roy Moore's alleged sexual misconduct. And that was the the fiercest booze. But she also criticized CPAC for inviting um, Marion Le Pen to speak and noted that uh, she supports her grandfather and that her grandfather was uh, an anti-Semite, a racist and a Nazi. And she got booed for pointing that. So it's like any, even the slightest criticisms or critiques are considered heretical and are uh, at the same time you have this this case where 86%, I think, of the Republican Party, according to the latest Gallup poll, still supports the president and his poll numbers have been um, going up. Uh, ever so slightly. And, you know, Republicans have been kind of even coalescing around the guy. So if you have conservative thinkers making these statements, it doesn't seem to be making that much of a difference. No, I, I think it makes a difference. Like, I've never enjoyed David Frum so much in my life, but um, <laughs> I, I don't think it really matters that I'm enjoying David Frum. So I want to talk about another story that um, that you covered. And obviously, this is a story that sits a little bit uh, close to home from where I'm sitting. It's not a very long drive to Paul Manafort Boulevard. Actually, it's named after his father. Uh, but uh, in the story that involves Paul Manafort, uh, one-time chairman of 
of Donald Trump's uh, national political campaign uh, and his associate Rick Gates. Uh, we had a bunch of developments over the course uh, of last week, including a kind of upping of the charges by Robert Mueller. And then on Friday, we had the Rick Gates uh, guilty plea to conspiracy and lying to investigators. So uh, what is there that we need to know about that? Or, or maybe a better way to ask it, this is what does this portend? Do we know? It's hard to say what happens next, as, as it's always been with all of this this stuff. But, uh, you know, Mueller, uh, the Mueller probe has done a very good job of slowly building a case um, in this specific instant, uh, instance and rolling up uh, people who might then be able to offer evidence and testimony against bigger fish, uh, almost like a, you know, uh, organized crime case or something like that. And what what happened on Friday was that Paul Manafort, who was the chairman of the Trump campaign between March and August, roughly, um, and Rick Gates were accused of uh, a series of crimes unrelated to the Trump campaign uh, in, uh, in regards to their previous work, allegedly lobbying for a pro-Russian Ukrainian party. And the deputy Test, uh, basically pled guilty to the this entire the entire conspiracy and it's it's interesting in that uh, if one of these men is guilty then it's very likely that both of them are they, they worked hand in hand in this and you have one saying that he was guilty and uh, you know he's obviously going to testify and all of this is just to try to put more pressure on Paul Manafort to um, himself plead guilty to some of these charges and perhaps uh, give bigger picture evidence or testimony to what he might know about the uh, bigger story that the Mueller probe is going after, which is how Russia interfered in our election and whether or not the Trump campaign played any part in colluding with that interference. Right. It seems to me that, you know, you've got the Mueller team, who are amazingly leak-proof, too. It's really, you know, it's amazing how, considering how leaky the rest of the world is right now, uh, it's kind of amazing how little we know about what's really going on inside there. And so occasionally they disgorge these stories, which, if we were not living in the twilight zone these days, would be just epic, gigantic stories. I mean, the, the, the indictments the, against the Russian company, and we're talking about like some bizarre 21st century episode of the Americans, you know, you've got these people on American soil stealing social security numbers to create fake bank accounts and setting up VPNs. And I mean, that's a pretty incredible story all by itself. Now, it doesn't, as you say, in the least bit sit anywhere near close to Manafort and Gates at the moment. And, and we, we really are at the point, it really is the blind man and the elephant. We see little parts of this and we don't really know how it all connects together. Although one place that it might appear to start connecting together is in the infamous Trump Tower meeting. You've got some of the elements of one story, the notion that Russia is very interested in our political process and particularly in gaming our political process so as to disadvantage Hillary Clinton. So that's good. They are going into the Trump Tower meeting. And then you've got Manafort et al. going towards the Trump Tower meeting. And we we know anyway from some of Mueller's exploration. He's very interested in what that was all about and about the statement that was ultimately put out, the one that was agreed upon or worked on on Air Force One. It seems to me that's like maybe the, the place I'd be watching now for some of this stuff to maybe come together. 
I was I was thinking something similar, and I would agree with you that that is if if the goal is to get Paul Manafort to begin cooperating, as has happened with George Papadopoulos, a much more junior person on the campaign, and as has happened now with Rick Gates, his deputy, and as happened with Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. If the goal is to uh, have that happen with Paul Manafort, which it obviously is, and which this Gates uh, plea, plea deal is meant to try to push, then yes, I think that meeting where Donald Trump Jr. took the meeting, Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner both attended the meeting, and the promise from Russia's, the Russians involved was that, uh, you know, as part of the, the Russia's support of the Trump campaign, we, we have dirt on Hillary Clinton. That was the explicit thing that was supposed to be discussed at the meeting. And that, you know, that's the biggest point of curiosity and one of the biggest open questions now, what actually took place at that meeting. Right. I mean, one thing federal prosecutors often say to people like us is, you know, I mean, the number of people who are like Susan McDougal, who actually wouldn't flip. I mean, like they'll say Susan McDougal should be in like a diorama, you know, at the National History Museum. as like the one person who couldn't be flipped, who couldn't wouldn't agree to, to say what they want her, her to say. And she'd just go to prison. She, they basically have told me nobody does that. You know, the minute you start sweating them, the minute you appear to have the goods on them and, and you ask them about a bigger fish, they give you the bigger fish. And that would appear to be the narrative that we're living in right now. Now, the question is, Is does Paul Manafort have any Susan McDougal in her? Well, he said he released a statement after uh, Rick Gates' uh, guilty plea was announced saying that I continue to ma- maintain my innocence and that he was disappointed that uh, Rick Gates had not maintained our innocence. So even he acknowledges and, and links the fact that these two men, you know, the crimes are so intertwined, the alleged crimes are so intertwined that it would be a case of our innocence versus not. And at the same time, he didn't say, I'm, I'm, I'm quibbling here and I'm parsing words and being a bit pedantic. But he said, I'm maintaining my innocence rather than I am innocent, which is a different, a different thing to say slightly. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that one. That's good. Jeremy Stahl, uh, go drink some coffee uh, and or Red Bull or whatever it is that's keeping you going uh, and then continue to do the fine work you've been doing for Slate. But thank you so much for visiting with me today. This is a really good idea, Colin. Thank you. Okay, um, and I want to say we're going to talk very. Specific, we're going to talk with one of the three kind of elite fact-checking organizations uh, in the next segment about all of the fog coming out of Parkland these days. And then after that, I'm setting aside time so that I can talk to you, the listeners. Our final segment will just be you and me, phone calls, stuff like that. And I think you've got a lot on your minds right now. I won't put out, put out the number quite yet, but. Think about what you're going to call in about and what you're going to wear when you're calling in. You know, do you want to wear a hat when you call in? Things like that. So most school shootings um, happen. Uh, and with the exception of Sandy Hook, which we all live through here, uh, most of them have a kind of finite lifespan, uh, probably m- shorter and more finite than they ever should. Um, Parkland uh, is proving to be a very, very different breed of school shooting. The story's going on and on. And as it goes on, um, there have been a number of sub-stories to it. Uh, and some of them have involved just 
falsehoods that have been circulated about various major players in this story and especially within the student response to this story. So um, there are, are several elite fact-checking organizations uh, in this world, uh, or at least in this country, uh, also in this world. Fact-checking is now like this worldwide activity. Um, you know, Every continent now has fact-checking organizations. It's a different story. Um, joining us right now is Saranac Hale Spencer, a staff writer for factcheck.org. That's the one that's run by Annenberg. Um, it's the easiest to remember because they don't use Pinocchio noses and they don't use pants on fire. They don't use little gimmicky bells and whistle stuff. They just uh, check the facts and, and, and tell you uh, what they found. So first of all, welcome very much to our show. And I hope that I pronounced your name correctly. You did. And, and thanks very much for having me, Colin. So you looked at a bunch of the stories that were floating around out there. And, and they really did start kind of in the middle of last week. Uh, one of the first ones uh, was that David Hogg, uh, who was a very active member of the uh, Parkland uh, student community. He's the guy who was uh, interviewing students even during uh, the, the crisis itself, uh, that that he was not who he purported to be, uh, that he was a 26-year-old felon from California. Or there are all kinds of different uh, things being circulated about this young man. Um, I, I, obviously, these things are not true. I don't know what else you want to say uh, about what you found. Right. Yeah. I mean, David Hogg did. He's sort of at the eye of the storm for these uh, conspiracy theories that have been circulating online um, since he and a group of other um, Parkland area uh, high school students have have become pretty vocal about changing gun laws. Um, yeah. You know, conspiracy theorists have, have sort of seized on he was last summer um, in California um, on summer vacation and um, had had taken a video at the beach with a friend having a, an interaction with a lifeguard um, about a boogie board that got picked up by local news. Um, and, uh, yeah, the Internet sort of seized on that clip as evidence that he's uh, not actually a high school student in Florida. You know, people became very suspicious of the fact that, I guess, a, a high school student could travel to a different state over summer vacation. So one of the other terms that uh, people see surfacing here, and it's not a new term, uh, is crisis actor. It actually has a real life, real specific meaning, which we can talk about. But uh, within the world of conspiracy theories on the internet, it's people who are hired to impersonate actual life players in these situations for the purpose of misleading the public. There are even claims made that uh, they can spot somebody who was used in that way during the Sandy Hook story, now appearing uh, in the Parkland version of this story. Um, what can you tell us about crisis actors? Yeah, so crisis actors, that's a term that has um, really become very popular among conspiracy theorists recently and actually was first used in the wake of Sandy Hook. That's sort of where the term evolved um, from uh, within conspiracy theory uh, circles. Uh, Motherboard actually did a, a really good article tracing the origins of, um, of the term. And uh, yeah, the, uh, an organization in Colorado, uh, Vision Box, had introduced this idea of crisis actors to help uh, first responders prepare for emergency situations like mass shootings or, you know, any any number of accidents or um, emergencies. And so like, actors to, you know, help firefighters, um, EMTs, you know, emergency responders uh, practice in the event of, you know, a, a major crisis. But um, following Sandy Hook, um, with, with a number of conspiracy theories coming out, um, after that shooting, they 
sort of shifted that term to mean, um, you know, people who travel from crisis to crisis sort of pretending to have witnessed, um, you know, whatever the event was, but they're, you know, in fact, paid actors, which doesn't exist. That's not, an, uh, that's not a thing that actually happens in the world. There, there is no such thing as, as a crisis actor. Um, well, I, I th- you know, I, I think um, uh, I should say that I, I have been teaching courses in recent years in which we teach the work that, that you do and, and the other fact-checkers do. And I think one of the things that begins to sink in uh, with me and my students when we look at this is that, you know, in, I mean, this, what you do became more and more necessary as media and communication became more and more digital and can flow more freely. I mean, it's, it's great that you can do this. And when you do this, I, I think a certain amount of people may be set straight about it. But you must feel also like you're trying to fight a br- brush fire with about three fire extinguishers, right? They just <laughs> That's exactly sur- yeah. right. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 No, that's exactly right. I mean, because the amount of time it takes to create these you know, fictional stories is much shorter than the time it takes to debunk them. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> it's, you know, they do, they just, they keep evolving. Um, and yeah, fighting them off is just, um, I mean, there's, there's no way to do it at the speed that they're created. Um, and especially with, you know, social media is sort of this aggregating force in um, spreading them. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they, these, these, falsehoods just show up in people's Facebook feeds, you know, in Twitter, uh, you know, it's just sort of coming at people in all directions all the time. Um, Right. So at times it seems as though whoever creates these things may be creating them as rabbit holes to kind of just chew up the time uh, of of fact checkers and conventional reporters who have to like run around just making sure that they can establish the reality um, uh, as opposed to the unreality of these claims. Like, I, I don't know what other motive there would be for suddenly asserting that Nicholas Cruz, uh, the shooter uh, in Parkland, was a registered Democrat. Um, first of all, you had to fact check that. What'd you find out? Right. I mean, yeah. So as as far as the motivation for this stuff, it's hard to, you know, I, I mean, I think there are, you know, a, a few different sort of, you know, motivations that, that contribute to, the, to this, you know, whatever this is, spreading of <laughs> falsehoods. Um, yeah. The, the claim that Nicholas Cruz was a Democrat that I mean, that sort of falls into this narrative that's been circulating for years now um, and was actually just recently sort of touched upon by Claudia Tenney, you know, a congresswoman from upstate New York who, you know, referenced this um, also in a radio show, you know, saying that it's, you know, Democrats are more likely to be mass shooters. Um, you know, so it, it it sort of feeds into this already existing narrative, um, and you know, exploits that, and then gets picked up and shared on social media, and then it's you know it's all over the place. But yeah, um, I so that was one that I checked out, and in fact, according to um, you know records from the Florida Department of State, Nicholas Cruz is not a registered voter not a registered Democrat, not registered in any political party. 
Um, last one. Uh, this was one that kind of sprung up over the weekend, and it was it almost seemed to be designed to be something that would be so incredibly complicated and uh, as to require um, huge amounts of, of fact checking. Um, it reminds me of during the campaign when it was suddenly alleged that it was the Hillary Clinton campaign that had originated the birther uh, story. I mean, we spent like I don't know all of us who were covering the campaign spent four or five days going down that rabbit hole just making sure that we could establish this. This was a complicated one because it, it actually involved one of the people with um, kind of a first-person role in the story, and that is a uh, young man named Colton Hobb, I think I'm saying his name correctly, mm-hmm. uh, who, who claimed basically that he was not allowed to say at a CNN town hall forum the thing that he wanted to say that, um, and one of, the, one of the key tripwire words in, in all of this stuff has been scripted, that he was being asked to say something scripted. And, and some of this deception, some of this, well, actually, we should just talk this through a little bit more. Um, so uh, basically, the, what, what, what it took to kind of get to the truth of this is to come up with some emails that went, I guess, back and forth between CNN and this young man's family. Right. Between Colton Hobb and his father, Glenn Hobb, and the um, you know producer for the CNN uh, town hall that took place, I guess it was last Wednesday. Um, yeah, so Colton Hobb had submitted several, you know, questions that he was interested in in asking during the town hall, um, and the emails that were later produced by uh, CNN um, later in the week on Friday, I believe it was, um, you know, show a back and forth uh, between the producer and Colton Hobb, and then later his father Glenn joins in. Um, but yeah, the you know the question was about whether or not. Um, this, the Florida senators would consider um, proposing legislation or, or, you know, encouraging the idea of having teachers uh, be armed in schools in order to, um, you know, respond to school shooting situations. Um, became a little complicated when his his father had suggested a longer sort of speech that he he would give during the town hall in order to give you know, context to his question. The producer said, no, that's just too long. You know, we want to be able to get to as many questions as possible. Let's just stick to the initial question that he had submitted. Um, Right. And so here's where context becomes very important, because if you just see one email in isolation, you see the CNN producer saying, um, you know, that that would be too long. We need to get as many people on as possible. Um, This is what... uh, Colton and I discussed on the phone, he needs to stick to this. And then in bold face, you know, there's a pretty simple two or three sentence uh, question, which uh, which if you don't know that he submitted that question as one of the possible things that he could say, it, it does. I mean, if you just pull that out in isolation, it might look as though CNN were saying, here's a question we want you to ask that we wrote. Um, and and I, I think one thing that you're, we're going to see as a result of this kind of stuff is people, people who do jobs like the one that my producer Jonathan, whom you dealt with today, do, they're going to become have to become even more careful about how they talk to people. You you just can't assume that if you're honest and have good intentions, that you're not going to fall into some kind of trap. Right, right. I mean, yeah, and this this has become awfully complex and gets to a level of minutia about planning these things that I don't think anybody really wants to know that much about. But um, 
the, I guess the the issue came in that following the town hall, which Colton Hobb didn't end up participating in, um, he and his family had had given to I think it was Fox News and Huffington Post copies of what they said were the emails between themselves and CNN, and they had taken out, you know, the the section that said it was a question that he had initially submitted himself, um, and so then, you know asked about that CNN produced you know their version of the emails that included this I mean it, it just it it really does create um, just a huge distraction from any you know significant or meaningful discussion you know getting into the minutiae of Right. And if you, you know, despite your best efforts at factcheck.org, uh, you know, if you look on Twitter right now, there are, first of all, of course, the president unhelpfully uh, threw logs on this particular fire. Uh, and, and if you look on Twitter right now, there are all these like um, ways in which conservatives and, and gun uh, ownership zealots are now contrasting Hobb and David Hogg, who we talked about before, and pitting them against one another. Uh, and I, it is, it is a, a bunch, a big blob of toothpaste that you will never ever get back in the tube, uh, no matter how hard you work on it at factcheck.org. But uh, I first of all want to say, Saranac, uh, Hale Spencer, you do fine work. Factcheck.org is terrific. Uh, We really appreciate the fact that you're taking this stuff as seriously as you do. And thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. So we're going to take a break. But before we take the break, I got to say this. Uh, there's no guest scheduled for after the break because I wanted you guys to have a chance to call in. I know that doesn't happen enough on this show, and there's reasons why. But anyway, um, but I do want this last. We'll have a pretty good stretch of time, too. So first of all, I'm going to tell you the number, 860-275-7266. I'm thinking we're going to talk more about Parkland, about gun culture, but also I, I also want to talk very specifically about the kind of breakdown in discourse that Saranac and I were just describing, to the fact that not only can we not have nice conversations anymore, but we are prohibited from having nice conversations by the amount of, of well, we used to comfortably call it fake news, and maybe we need a new term, but the, the, um, the sheer amount of confusion intentionally sowed in order to avoid um, or prohibit, preclude the possibility of us having a sane and civil conversation. I think that's a big part of what I would like to have in a and civil conversation that will follow. Once again, 860-275-7266. But I don't want to be in a Connor Hobbs situation. I don't want to be accused of telling you what to say in a scripted comment. You say whatever you want to say. My facts add up to what I want them to. I just say the amount. Your facts are based on science. My facts are made up by me Your facts use numbers Mine use sophistry Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is really Katie Couric. Somebody fact check that... The part of Bill Curry was played by crisis actors. On tomorrow's show, super famous scientist David Galerner explains consciousness. And now.
back to Colin. This is one of the most daunting shows. I mean, the one that we're doing tomorrow. This is one of the most daunting. This is a daunting show, too. But uh, David Glernter is a massive intellect uh, and uh, an intellect who's thinking sprawls all over the place into every imaginable discipline. He's written a, a very accessible book about consciousness, but um, I don't know. It, it's like one of those interviews where you wonder whether you whether all the preparation you've done in your life is going to be good enough. <laughs> all right. So meanwhile, I'm fascinated to talk to you guys right now. 860-275-7266. Over the course of the weekend, of course, um, uh, there were more proposals bandied about. Um, President Trump uh, called the Janine Pirro, Judge Janine Pirro show on Saturday night. This is apparently what he likes to do on Saturday night. And in his usual uh, articulate and specifics-laden uh, parlance, described the kind of legislation he would like to see. I've spoken to many senators, many congressmen, just today, yesterday, the day before. And I think we're going to have a great, a great bill put forward very soon having to do with background checks, having to mm -hmm. do with uh, getting rid of certain things and keeping other things, and uh, perhaps uh, we'll do something having, you know, on age, because right. it doesn't seem to make sense that you have to wait till you're 21 years old to get a pistol, but to get a gun like this maniac used in the school, you get that at 18. I mean, that doesn't make sense, and frankly, right. I explained that to the NRA. They're great people. Mm -hmm. Wayne and Chris and all of their great patriots. These are great people. Mm -hmm. But I said, fellas, we have to we have to get going on some really good legislation. So background checks are going to be very important. I can almost guarantee you that there will be not not be presidentially drafted or sponsored legislation that fits that particular description, uh, particularly as regards background checks. However, I can absolutely guarantee you that there will be legislation having to do with getting rid of certain things and keeping other things. I, I'm pretty sure that part of his statement will withstand any amount of picking, picking apart. I don't really know what it means, but it certainly seems to be something that would probably be true. Uh, all right. So um, let's go to our uh, callers who will be much more articulate uh, and much more specific, I can guarantee you, than that particular caller to the Janine Pirro show. Uh, we're going to start with Kathleen in Clinton. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. I teach in the state universities, and I've, since Sandy Hook, uh, always gone into a classroom and thought about how I would shore up the door if I needed to. But I would say the latest um, proposal from our president is just insane, that somehow a teacher would want to handle a gun and shoot a gun and possibly kill someone. Like, that's just not what teachers sign up for. And I've seen a lot of proposals get vets and ex-cops to become teachers. You know, are they going to be part bartenders, too? Should we, you know, train our band members so at concerts? It, I just think the whole assault rifle thing is insane, and we have to be careful not to normalize it with potential solutions. Right. Uh, I just want to, uh, uh, Kathleen, before we uh, talk a little bit more, before I comment on your comment, uh, refresh people's minds about what the president did say in the same context about that. You have to have protection. You see what happened with the police officers that didn't have the guts to go into. I mean, now it turns out, I guess there's four of them. Four which of is them. Incredible. That's my, that's my would open have had, tonight. If we would have had uh, some great teachers that were gun adept, meaning, you know, really understood weaponry and guns, and if they had concealed permits, 
you wouldn't have this problem today. You just wouldn't have it. And, you know, they have one other thing. They love those children, the teachers. They love those children. Right. That coach who was so brave, who ran into gunfire to protect the kids, if he had his gun concealed, if he had his gun, he would have been – he'd be alive today. Most yes. of the people would be a whole different story. But he would have been shooting instead of running into somebody totally unarmed who was a maniac. Speaking of maniacs, the latest thing the president has also said now is that he believes that had he been there on the scene with no weapon, he would have run in uh, to uh, to do what? Uh, to uh, physically confront the shooter, even if he had no weapon. Uh, this is what's known as a cheap date with your own conscience. You can sort of make up something that you would have done had you been in that situation. I personally think, those of you who are old enough to remember Dr. Zachary Smith on Lost in Space, that he would have fallen to his knees and whimpered uh, a la Dr. Zachary Smith. But, you know, to Kathleen's point, I mean, you just listen to the president talk. It, it, you can actually sense already what a stupid idea this is. Um, this is a stupid idea because, first of all, it presumes that they're going to be these gun-adept teachers. And, and what are they going to have? Are they going to have sidearms? If they're going to have sidearms and they're going to get into a confrontation with somebody with an AR-15, there's a pretty good chance they're going to lose uh, because an AR-15 can shoot bullets much faster. That's the whole point of this. It's the reason we're having this conversation about banning assault weapons is because they shoot bullets really fast. They shoot a lot of bullets. So no, you know, even if you had this insane pipe dream of an idea of armed teachers who received elite firearm training, first of all, they'd have to be right at the door when the shooter came. I mean, let's imagine uh, a situation like Parkland or, or Sandy Hook. You know, these people, they come and they start shooting. They don't wait until the person with a gun gets there. So, I mean, a certain amount of students and teachers who don't have guns are still going to get shot. It's not a good solution. It's not as good a solution as making it really difficult for that kind of person to get a weapon like that. That's a much better solution. It's just politically less appealing. I, I just quickly want to say also that that everything that he has talked about so far is either incredibly low-hanging fruit. I mean, bump stocks is the lowest-hanging fruit of sensible gun legislation. Like, anybody could figure that one out. And the other stuff has been stuff like this, which has been just stupid and impractical, and it's not going to happen anytime soon. It's, you know, it, it, and if it did happen, it wouldn't solve the problem. So, I mean, I, you know, as usual, he has been no help at all. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he's also anybody can call up the Gene Pirro show and say, "Oh, I'm really pretty sure there's going to be legislation." He has no idea whether there's going to be legislation. He doesn't have that kind of relationship with congressional leadership. He doesn't know what, but McConnell and Ryan can deliver to him. He hasn't got the slightest idea of that. Um, all right. So anyway, we, so I've got to stop yelling. Um, I get a little bit frustrated. All right. Here is um, David in Hamden. Hi, David. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, I'd like to just uh, comment that I've been kind of frustrated that we haven't heard more from law enforcement on this idea of arming the teachers. I, re I remember back when that congressional baseball team shooting happened, there was some talk of that, that the last thing they would want is more people on site shooting. Um, but I haven't heard law enforcement um, come forward and say this is a terrible idea. I, I think you will hear that. I, I think that there's such a conflagration right now that it's hard to get heard. Uh, they may be holding back. Their law enforcement, although 
we should say law enforcement doesn't speak with one voice. Every police chief I've ever talked to in my life wants the guns off the street. I mean, it's not safe for cops to have so many guns and yeah. so many high-powered guns on the street. So, you know, every cop that every police chief I've ever spoken to is either an open or closet gun control fan. Um, and, and certainly, yes, they would, I would think to a man understand, or to a person, excuse me, understand what a bad idea this is for all the reasons that you're suggesting. Now, right now, you know, they may be dealing with a little bit of a black eye to the extent that the Broward County Sheriff's Office did right. not cover itself with glory on yeah. other aspects of this story. Maybe they're waiting till that dies down before they talk. Right, right. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for your call. Uh, and uh, uh, let's go. Let's go to Mary Jane in North Stonington. Hi, Mary Jane. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Colin. I'm just saying as a retired librarian, asking people to pick up a history book and study a little bit about the Ukraine. Tremendously interesting nation. Uh, looks toward Europe, wants nothing to do with the Russians, and it would be kind of nice to know about them. I was so fortunate to go to school with Ukrainian immigrants at one time, and they tell a wonderful story. And it would be nice to know that while you're studying Manafort, study the Ukraine and the place that he was getting himself involved with. I think that's a great point. I feel as though, in general, and I'm sure as a retired school librarian, you share this, that we're under-informed on international perspectives. Um, I know I keep talking about teaching this class, but one thing that I've experienced teaching this year is having two students from other countries. These are college students. One of them's from Singapore. One of them's from Kenya. Having them in the class, having them be part of the discussion, you know, you just realize how much uh, the American perspective, although it's incredibly fragmented, we argue a lot, among ourselves, there are all kinds of assumptions that Americans take for granted that people from other countries don't necessarily uh, take for granted. So, um, so yeah, it would be good if we knew more about other places and other people. Um, all right, so our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. we got a lot of calls here. I'm trying to figure out where to go. Well, I'll just alternate uh, man-woman until, until somebody can uh, tell me better. Here's uh, John in Bethlehem. Hi, John, you're on the air. Hey, Colin, uh, you, you have a great radio voice here, and uh, what a show. I'm from Cantwell, Alaska, a little podunk town near Denali Park. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say I'm not apathetic about what goes on in the world all around, but there is a healing mantra, Om Shri Hanome Te Namaha, that can help everybody if everybody just consigns. And as far as your Achilles heel, there's, in Philly, there's Pan Herb Company that can sell you some comfrey root powder. You put that on your heel, and uh, you're good to go. All right. I live, I, I live for a cause like you. Please do that chant about my Achilles heel, which has turned into my Achilles heel, you know, which is, I mean, at the moment, my Achilles heel is my Achilles heel, uh, which I don't know whether it's a good feeling or not. All right. Uh, here's, uh, let's see, here's Susan in White Plains. Hi. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I was a teacher for a really long time in the South Bronx, and most of our kids had dropped out three to four times. We were a last-chance school. Many, many, many of them were gang members. And in over 15 years, we didn't have one incident of violence ever because we spent the time to have social-emotional classes with them. We had extra social workers, and just by taking care of them, they made sure that there weren't fights in the school. They would come to us to tell us if there was going to be a fight, and we stopped everything. And 
all of this turning it into a, turning our schools into a prison isn't going to help the situation. We need to help the kids where they need help. This is such a great call, and I don't know if there's anything more that you can say about that, but that notion that teachers who are attuned to the currents uh, of, of talk and mood and emotion running through the student body are more effective deterrent than, student, than teachers with some kind of sidearm strapped to their waist is one. That's sort of an argument I'm not hearing that much uh, in the media. That's been my big frustration, that it automatically goes to turning our schools into prisons and, and putting more... Our school actually frequently, um, they tried to put metal detectors in, and the schools fought against it, even though, as I said, these kids were gang members. They were not going to bring anything into the school that would endanger their school because they felt that it was a family. The first hour of every day was a, a class called Family Group where they got to voice what was going on in their homes and in their lives so that they could then go on and study during the day without being too upset. They knew if they had problems, they could go to any of the teachers or to any of the social workers. And that's what kept the calm in the school. That's what kept it completely, completely safe. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for your call, Susan. Um, I guess I'll do one last call here, and then I'm going to run out of time, I'm sorry to say. Here's a Linda in Woodbury. Hi, Linda. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you, Colin. Um, this is a, a silly analogy, but it, uh, that's kind of the point. Um, what if we required NRA members to teach a high school class in order to shoot their guns, <laughs> you know, at target practice or something? I mean, ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Right. Now, somebody suggested to me in an email today that it made about as much sense as you go into the police station to learn how to read, uh, that they, you know, the police should all be trained in how to assist people in acquiring uh, reading or stem cells, stem skills or something like that. So anyway, thanks very much for your call. I don't think I dare take another call, but I do want to thank those who did. And uh, Michael and Scott, I'm sorry I didn't get to your calls. I do want to thank uh, the terrific team that was here. We did it all without Betsy Kaplan. Betsy Kaplan is the usual producer of the Monday Scramble. Uh, and she's our senior producer, too. But she's she's having a va- we forced her to take a vacation. We forced her to go out and be irresponsible and walk around on beaches and drink rum and and do whatever it is that people do on vacations. So anyway, we were fine. We did it. We were OK. Right. We did fine. Uh, anyway, thanks for calling in. We'll be back tomorrow with this somewhat imposing uh, conversation about consciousness with David Glinter. But I think you're really going to like it and you're going to like his approach. <laughs>